Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This program is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series, featuring David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. As part of these conversations, we frequently talk about Canada's bilateral relationship with the United States and the ways in which economic, social, and political developments tend to migrate back and forth across the borders. In today's episode, in anticipation of a forthcoming article by David in The Atlantic, We're expanding the conversation to discuss recent trends in Mexico, its bilateral relationship with Canada, and its broader role in North America. David, thanks as always for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. Let's start by discussing your big piece for The Atlantic on Mexico. It was the result of some on-the-ground reporting and analysis, as well as drawing on your own extensive network to understand the current political and social climate there. Uh, Let me ask a two-part question. First, why did you decide to pursue this story? And second, what did you find? What's your key insight? Yeah, well, you know, we are consumed in our modern world, the problem of of illiberal authoritarianism, these um, uh, illiberal democracies. uh, And I don't think people are paying enough attention to the fact that one of the most dangerous of them is growing up right on this continent. And that is the the uh, current administration in Mexico. It's headed by a man named Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who is the president of the country and has been since the summer of 2018, or he was elected in the summer of 18 and he was inaugurated in the fall of 2018. I don't think people appreciate how short Mexico's democratic history is. Mexico has been an independent state for close to, or for now more than 200 years. And in that time, it's been ruled by emperors and by dictators and by juntas. But a peaceful transfer of power from one pre- from a president of one p- party to the president of another party by means of a free and fair democratic election, the first time that happened in Mexican history was in the year 2000. So we're dealing with a two-decade, not even a quarter-century history of, of multi-party liberal democracy, and it's safeguarded by some important, precious institutions. And Lopez Obrador, in order to perpetuate his influence over the political system, is laying waste to those institutions and preparing the way for reversion to what Mexico was as recently as the 1980s and 1990s, a society that has elections, but they're not free, they're not fair, and they're designed not to alternate power, but to perpetuate power. In light of your response, it it prompts the question, why is he so popular, Uh, according to most polls, including an approval rating of 63%? which Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden would be thrilled to have. Well, um, he is indeed in the polling in the 60s. Two things can be said about that. First, of his predecessors, going back to the 1990s, with one exception, his immediate predecessor, they all polled 
at about 60% at this point in the presidency. So Mexicans tend to give their presidents high approval ratings for reasons that I don't have to do with Mexican political culture. The immediate predecessor had a bad one, but I think because the president's so powerful, people want to believe the best. And so at the four-year mark, Zedillo and Fox and Calderon, who are three of the four previous predecessors, all polled at about 60%. It's also true that he has done some genuinely good and important things. The most important and the most beneficial thing he's done is introduced um, a universal old age pension. Mexico had a social security system into which you have to, you pay at work and then you collect the pension. But because it's a very dysfunctional system and a lot of Mexicans drop out of it. Mexico is a huge informal economy. Workers and firms that don't pay taxes, don't comply with regulations, and therefore the people who work there don't accumulate the record you need to accumulate to qualify for social security. So probably about half of working Mexicans end up with ineligible for an old age pension. So he's introduced a universal pension. It's not super generous, but especially in the more rural parts of the country, it's enough to keep body and soul together. People appreciate that. He also is someone who's got a very powerful rhetorical presence and a lot of expressions of commitment to the problems of of poor Mexicans, indigenous Mexicans. But the irony is actually that otherwise his administration has actually not done all that much. And the things it's mostly doing are giant boondoggle prestige projects of the worst kind from the Mexican past and not dealing with the, the real social problems of Mexico. You mentioned in your your first response that a lot of people in Canada and the United States probably aren't following uh, him or political developments in Mexico closely. I, I want to take up that point and ask you to help our listeners and viewers understand Obrador's politics. How should we situate him? Is he a left-wing populist that merely preferences the state over markets and economic nationalism over globalization? Or is he an authoritarian aspirant who is slowly yet steadily eroding Mexico's democratic institutions? Maybe to put differently, what's his end game? What do you think he's aiming to accomplish? Well, those are all great and important questions. Um, and let me uh, let me start with the first one. This, this is if there's one thing I would really like to a point I'd really like people to take away from the article and from our conversation is this: this habit of dividing authoritarians into left wing and right wing variants is helps nobody but the authoritarians themselves. Because what it means is that they can each pick up fan bases in different parts of the political world in the democratic countries. And so the the people who support, say, the late Hugo Chavez would believe he's one thing. And the people like Viktor Orban think he's the opposite thing, but they're the same thing. There's some local differences, but a lot of the technologies of power they use are, are similar. And basically the problem that all of these authoritarian of left and right variety are solving is how do I destroy democracy without at home without completely removing my country from the international marketplace? Because no one, not even um, the Chinese communists, not even Vladimir Putin, wants to return to the kind of walled off economies we had in, in some countries in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. They all want to, Mexico was a walled off economy. They all want the benefits of participating in the global economy. But they want to avoid the liberalization and democratization that comes along with that. And that's their project. And so they, they, I mean, they have different personal histories. They have different, they inherit different kinds of political coalitions. They speak to different kinds of grievances. Lopez Obrador will invoke class resentments rather than racial resentments, although he invokes racial resentments too. His party is called Morena. Now that stands for movement as a Spanish acronym for movement of national renewal. But also the word Morena in Spanish means the brown one. 
And he claims to speak for the brown-skinned people of Mexico against the white-skinned people, although Obrador himself is almost purely European and Spanish by, by heritage. Uh, just last month, the three North American leaders met in Mexico. I reread the, their joint statement in preparation for a conversation, and I was struck that diversity, equity, inclusion was listed as the top priority, climate change was second, the economy was third, migration and security were fourth, and six, respectively. How should we interpret the joint statement? Is it a signal that greater economic and security, security cooperation is just going to face limits as long as Obrador remains in office? Well, these are not affidavits, and they're not delivered under oath. And although I'm sure those all those words were at some point or another over the conference said, Justin Trudeau was there for a day longer than President Biden, I believe. Um, that's not what was really going on. Um, it is Bilateral cooperation is at a very low ebb. One of Lopez Obrador's plans for perpetuating his power is to allow the Mexican military to become more corrupt. And that means that he will be a keeper of dirty secrets. There's a hugely explosive story. At the end of 2020, a former Mexican defense minister was arrested in the United States for shielding drug cartels and for money. And Lopez Obrador went berserk and said, if the Americans do not immediately release this general, he's, he was, would review all drug cooperation between Mexico and the United States. The waning days of the Trump administration, and they yield. They yield. They release the general. They drop the charges. He returns to Mexico. But the drug cooperation still is not what it should be. Canada has a very particular bilateral concern uh, with Mexico. which is Northern Mexico is, of course, Sonoran Desert. It has huge solar energy potential. And Canadian investors have spent a lot of money, billions of dollars, uh, building solar energy plantations, I guess you'd call them, in northern Mexico. But these plantations are only effective if they're connected to the national power grid. Now, you'd think Mexico would want that because Mexico has chronic electricity shortages, especially in the north, which is where the industry tends to be. But Lopez Obrador is fixated on preserving Mexican ownership of electricity production. And uh, he's got some like statistic in his mind about how much should be produced from Mexican-owned sources. And so he's not allowing these, these Canadian solar plantations, which are worth billions, to be connected to the grid. And instead, he's investing a lot of state money in building new, dirty, polluting uh, electricity resources and building especially a giant new oil refinery in his home state of Tabasco on the south, southern part of Mexico. So although Obrador is, Lopez Obrador, is conventionally described as left-wing, he completely rejects ideas about climate change. He's a huge promoter of oil and gas. And he also, by the way, was a big COVID denier. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Uh, let's stay on the subject of uh, Canada-Mexico relations. It's easy to forget now that one of Justin Trudeau's major speeches prior to the 2015 election, which he ultimately won, was a critique of the then Harper government's approach to Canada-Mexico relations, including the imposition of visas on Mexican travelers. As Trudeau put it at the time, quote, 
Harper's approach to relations with Mexico have been belligerent and borderline churlish, unquote. Uh, the Trudeau government subsequently indeed waived the visa requirement. But as you say, it's not obvious that the relationship has, has otherwise markedly improved. How should we think about the state of the bilateral relationship? And what, if anything, can the Canadian government do to strengthen cooperation on, on issues of, of continental shared interests? Well, the Canadian green energy investors who committed billions of dollars to build these solar plantations in northern New Mexico, that Lopez Obrador won't allow to be connected to the Mexican grid, might be forgiven for thinking maybe a little more churlish called for. You know, that th- there are, uh, you know, obviously you want to preserve a, f- a friendly tone in relationships between nations as best you can. By the way, that's not Lopez Obrador's method. He is very, the only foreign leader he's ever really liked is Donald Trump, for whom he has endless compliments. Because Trump, Trump took the view, look, I want two things from Mexico. I want you to stop the flow of migrants, some of whom are Mexican, others of whom are from other places transversing Mexico. And I want you uh, to sign um, an update to NAFTA, which reduces the uh, proportion of Chinese-made parts that can go into NAFTA cars. And if you do those two things, and that's basically all, maybe some drug stuff, you you can dismantle Mexican democratic institutions. I don't care. And Lopez Obrador loved that because he's ultimately, he doesn't really have that much of a social or economic agenda. He talks about it, but he's not doing much about it. You know, Mexico, just to put this in context for what the kind of society Mexico is, across the OECD, the group of, what, 30-something highly developed countries, the average tax take by government is about 33%. You know, from, you know, the most libertarian to the most status, it averages out at about 33 the Mexican tax take, tax take is under 17%. And uh, Mexico just doesn't tax very much. I mean, it has high rates on paper, but close to half the economy is informal, off the books. There's, of course, a vast criminal economy. And even in the um, legal economy, a lot of the tax goes uncollected. Um, and so that uh, puts real constraints on the social ambition of Mexican governments. And Lopez Obrador is also very averse to debt. So Mexico doesn't b- borrow much. So whenever he creates one of these giant boondoggles or when he introduces a new social program, he pays for it by squeezing the existing social programs. Uh, So he's not a, he doesn't have an ambitious social agenda. What he has is an agenda of power, an agenda of control, and an agenda of nationalism. And so in that sense, you know, Canadians might well say, you know, Canada has believed in the possibility of Mexican progress, um, has invested important uh, resources in it and, and has made this extraordinary contribution of allowing Mexico to become a greener producer of electricity that it needs. Um, and Canadians have had their nose a little bit rubbed in it. And and so they might say of their prime minister, well, you know, it's nice that you're so jolly, uh, but the people who pay your salary, the people who elect you to office, they have interests that they expect you to affirm. Let me ask a, a bigger picture question about how Canadian policymakers ought to conceptualize continental relations with, between the three countries. Uh, I mentioned a 2015 speech that the prime minister, then opposition leader, delivered. Uh, let me take up a speech that he, he's recently delivered in his capacity as prime minister about Canada-Mexico relations. Uh, I was struck that so much of it emphasized the trilateral relationship rather than the bilateral one. He talked, for instance, about the, quote, three amigos. Is that inevitable? Or in your view, should Canada aspire to have its own relationship with Mexico separate apart from a trilateral context? Well, this I'm going to blow some dust off an ancient piece of partisan history. 
which is one of the di differences between conservatives and liberals back in the 80s and 90s, was uh, the conservatives wanted Mexico not to join U.S.-Canada free trade agreement. Uh, and the liberals wanted Mexico, were very much keen on it. The Khrushchev government was very keen on it. And the Khrushchev government's thinking was, if Mexico joined, it would tend to um, reduce the power of the United States within the relationship. And you could have a two-on-one scenario because they always imagined that Canada and Mexico would be allies against the United States. But instead, what happened was, so if you'd had a U.S.-Canada area, you could have had mobility of labor, total mobility of capital. You could, you, you could have integrated uh, the trade relationship with the national security relationship. NORAD, back in the news, can, can, the very intimate Canada, U.S. Uh, and Mexico's not, you can't have mobility of labor with Mexico because the huge differences in standards of living will mean mass migration. And there is no defense, very little defense cooperation with Mexico. And the Mexican military is not a reliable partner. It is highly penetrated by organized crime. Um, and so that the Maruti view was, look, Yay, Mexico, you know, friendly neighbor to the South. But no, the U.S.-Canada should be its own thing. And then NAFTA was joined. And that has permanently reduced the level of cooperation you can have in the NAFTA zone. Uh, it would be possible to imagine a U.S.-Canada, for example, common carbon tariff against the rest of the world. It's very hard to imagine a NAFTA carbon tariff against the rest of the world. Last point, you know, one of the Mexico is a great source of all kinds of insecurity. For the rest of the continent. Now, here's here's the most alarming and heartbreaking number I came away from my trip. 1994, GDP per capita was significantly higher in Mexico than in China. If the Mexican economy since 19, ended after 1994 had grown one quarter as fast as the Chinese economy has done over that period, one quarter, Mexico today would have would be a, a country with a GDP per capita looking like France and Italy. It'd be a fully developed first world EU. It wouldn't be as rich as the United States and Canada. If, if it had grown at half the Chinese rate, it would be as rich as Canada now. Uh, but if it, even at one quarter, Mexico did not make, make that. And so because Mexico has remained trapped in underdevelopment, because Americans and Canadians thought that NAFTA was the beginning of a reform process, and Mexican political and business elites thought that it was the end. That was, that was the concession. That's what we had to do to catch up, and we're stopping there. The result is that Mexico has remained mired in underdevelopment. And with all the consequences, not just of poverty, but of weak institutions, especially security institutions, that then export insecurity to everybody else. And if Lopez Obrador makes this lunge for power that he's planning at to per extend his, his informal power after he's supposed to leave office in 2024, he, he will quit the office but keep the power. You could have a real reaction in Mexico that'll be very destabilizing for everybody. Uh, wow, there's a lot of great insight there. Let me just uh, pose a, a penultimate question to you. Uh, in a forthcoming episode of the Hub's regular podcast, Hub Dialogues, I spoke to Tom DeQuino, uh, who has a forthcoming memoir about uh, his time involved in public policy issues, including continental ones. In our conversation, he laments the the kind of stalled nature of continental integration on the economy, security, climate, and, and, and other areas. In this era of populism and anti-globalization, is there reason to think that that those efforts or those ambitions can be renewed? And if so, what might that look like today? We have to renew them. I mean, like we have this weird situation where a car or a hog can easily move back and forth across the U.S. Canadian and U.S. Mexican border. But a streaming service, uh, which is completely weightless, cannot. 
Obviously, you can't have packages moving easily between the United States and Mexico, or else there would be drugs moving north and guns moving south. But just think about what is lost because you know you can't have the kind the, the kind of service that exists within the United States. You can't extend that service across the border. And and think of of the I mean, think of if if Amazon could have its warehouses to serve Los Angeles and San Diego just across the border in Mexico. If Toronto could get its packages from the cheap land of upstate New York, um, there are huge gains of efficiency there. Um, but we we can't we are not achieving them. So we we have we we have achieved great integration of the economies as they existed in the 1980s and early 90s. But the post-internet economy is is not continentally integrated, and that's just there's just it's like the economist nightmare of hundred dollar bills lying around the sidewalk and nobody stooping to pick them up. Final question, in light of all that we've discussed today, what would be your advice to Canadian governments? How can it push back against some of these worrying trends in in Mexico and and buttress the forces of liberalization on one hand? And on the other hand, um, try to uh, reinvigorate the goals around continental integration between our three countries? Well, the Canadian role is obviously more limited than the American role. But one thing Canada really can do because the American-Mexican relationship is, is strewn with heartbreaking wars and interventions and mistrust. Canada doesn't have that record. Um, platform, Mexican liberals and Democrats, there are a lot of them. Make sure they're invited, you know, bring them to lecture at Canadian universities, follow their work, know what they care about, understand their problems. Um, it's not as spectacular as what's going on in Ukraine, but pay attention to it too, because in, in many ways, I think we, the thing we need to conceptualize is we really have left behind a lot of the world of left and right, that we are moving into a new world of liberal and illiberal. And illiberal comes in a lot of varieties and flavors, they're, but they're all, you know, whether they, they pretend to be all, um, vinegar, salt and vinegar, whether they pretend to be dill pickle, whether they pretend to be jalapeno, it's all the same nasty, unhealthy snack. Um, and we need to be standing up for the values of liberal democracy, uh, markets, opportunity, the, the free movement of investment, moving toward a world of free movement of people. We can't have that now, but, but someday uh, we need to have it. That's the vision. And Canada can be part of keeping that vision alive, especially with a country like Mexico that tends to get less attention than it deserves. Well, I'm, I'm grateful that we're able to put some attention to it in today's conversation. I'd strongly encourage listeners and viewers to check out uh, David's forthcoming article on the subject of The Atlantic. David Frum, thanks for joining us for another episode of, of In Conversation with David Frum and look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for listening to this special presentation of The Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your audio online and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornoski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.